A number of years ago, there was a, a very experienced motorcycle salesman that used to love his job selling bikes. It was the, the greatest thing ever. But after doing it for some time, he found himself in kind of an odd position of not enjoying the ride anymore. And he was actually losing interest in riding motorcycles and figured that this is it. So he's done. He's, he's had his fill of it and now he's going to move on. And just as he's getting ready to, to hang up that riding suit and just walk away from motorcycling for good, this guy walks into his dealership and he tries to sell him something. Now, he could have just walked away and said, no, talk to somebody else in here. I'm not interested and went on with life. But he didn't. There was something about this guy and his idea that intrigued him. He listened some more. That chance meeting between Sean Thomas and Jim Hyde opened up a whole new world to Sean, which eventually landed him in what many would describe as one of the most desirable jobs in the motorcycle industry. Coming up next, Sean Thomas. My name's Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. I'm Sam Manick. Ted Simon. Austin Vince. Simon Pavey. Brian Field. Helga Pedos. Jocelyn Snow. Charlie Borman. Carl Parker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Grant Johnson. Jimmy Lewis. Jim Hart. Chris Jansen. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. It's wind pressure that powers the MotoBreeze chain oiler. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers the oil to a felt pad on your swing arm. No nozzles near your sprockets. One ounce of oil gets 1,000 miles or 1,600 kilometers. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets. MotoBreeze.com. Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Googletech filters. CyclePump.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And, of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear. GreenChiliADV.com. So I'm Sean Thomas from Monterey Bay, California, and I my main job is the brand ambassador for BMW USA and worldwide. Well, that's probably why you're so successful at what you do. You know, that, that willingness to sort of step out and say, yeah, I, I can do it. And everybody sort of looks at you and goes, really? Yeah. <laughs> most of the... Most of my career currently is based on that. Yeah, I'll give it a go. I have no idea what I'm doing, but okay. <laughs> I don't tell them that. <laughs> Sean Thomas is a brand ambassador for BMW. He is a certified BMW instructor, also works behind the scenes with product development and testing. And as well, he travels the world riding and leading tours and teaching people how to ride adventure motorcycles. But today, his story begins with Lipton Soup. Sean, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you. I'm really stoked to speak with you. I'm, I'm really interested in, in finding your story because, as I mentioned to you, I tried to find you know more information on who Sean Thomas is and where you came from, etc. And uh, although you have website up and you're 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 very public, you, you seem to you know you're you're in the public eye a lot, but there's not much there about where you come from, you know, as, as your your total yeah. background. So, <laughs> so, 
So where did you grow up? So uh, I was born and raised um, here in Santa Cruz, California, to a single mom working at Lipton Tea. And uh, I have five brothers and seven sisters. Wow. Of varying age ranges. They are all half. My parents were married and divorced multiple times. So they're sort of spread out across the age range and across the world. <laughs> I keep up as best I can, but that's a lot of people. You know, that's 12, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, somebody did the math for me. <laughs> I had to do the addition here as you were talking. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I, uh, born and raised in Santa Cruz. Uh, I, uh, Never thought I would have a career in motorcycles. I was a high school dropout that worked as a carpenter for a very long time. And, and, um, as we sort of quietly mentioned earlier, you know, I, uh, when I would get bored with what I was doing, I'd move on to a new career. And that has in a very strange way led me to motorcycles. You mentioned Lipton tea. I'm just wondering the significance of that. Um, you know, when, when I was a little kid, because my mom, uh, was raising me alone in a very expensive neighborhood. She uh, had to move a lot. And and I she tried to keep me in the same school. And in the mornings, uh, we lived a good solid 10 miles from where I went to school. And, and in the mornings, she would get me up at four in the morning and and uh, bring me out to the, her car. I was probably eight years old at the time. And, and I would fall asleep in the back seat and she would drive to work to Lipton. And uh, at about 6:30 on her break, she would come out and wake me up, and I would eat breakfast out of this little uh, tin that she kept uh, milk and cereal for me in separate tins, and I'd mix it up, and then I'd take my bike off the bike rack on the back, and I would ride my bicycle to school, and at the end of the day, I would ride my bicycle back to Lipton. My mom would pick me up and take me back to my house, and uh, <laughs> um, every time I go by Lipton Tea in Santa Cruz, and I, you know, I smell it. I think about those moments in my life when I was a kid living, you know, me and mom against the world. What did you feel when you were doing that? Did it seem like you were, you were odd? It, it didn't seem weird until I had kids of my own. Um, now I have two kids and I look at um, what I let them do. Uh, you know, they, they ne basically never leave the property of my house unsupervised. You know, I take them to school. I pick them up. I take them to whatever extracurricular events that they have and pick them up. You know, they're, they're never out on their own on a bicycle in the open world. And it seems so strange to me to look back and think that's how I live my life. You know, that's just how it was. You're a hover parent. Yeah. <laughs> a helicopter, a helicopter it, parent. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, helicopter parent. I, I think that certainly compared to what my mom was for me, yes, most definitely yes. But compared to the other soccer parents out there today, I'd say I'm pretty laid back. <laughs> but did it hinder you or help you? I, I think that uh, it it was always really strange to me as a kid to be around other kids my age that didn't have the freedoms that I had. You know, I got to come and go as I pleased and, and I was responsible for myself and I knew that anything I did wrong was on my mom's shoulders and I knew she had a hard to go as it was. So I was uh, very responsible compared to my friends who, you know, I have to be home by X time and I'm not allowed to go outside of a certain range. And, and, and I, Oh, wow. That's, that's pretty wild. I, I kind of get to do what I want. <laughs> that's interesting. I had a similar childhood, similar sort of thing yeah. where I, where I had the, the freedoms. Um, I thought I was being independent myself, but um, I don't know what it was, different parenting style. But I, I, so with you, if you grew up that way and you sort of feel good about it by the sounds of it, why not let your kids grow up that way? I think that I grew up that way out of necessity. Um, and I lived in an environment where 
you know, the, it takes a village attitude and, and people sort of looked out for me, you know, um, it, where I live now, it's very remote and it's not a sort of look uh, environment where there's, uh, um, lots of kids running around, you know, my kids are sort of an anomaly and, uh, and you know, there's no, uh, sidewalk, you know, where they can run next door and play with the kids. It's like, you leave my property and you're on a road where people go 60 miles an hour, you know, you can't, I really let them just go run off on bikes, but there's plenty of room here. So they don't know any better to them. It's they've got all the freedom in the world. Mm. Yeah. And I'm not judging your parenting at all. (laughs) (laughs) I've done the same thing with our kid. We have four kids and, and we've done the the same sort of thing. It's completely different from how I grew up and, and we lived, we've lived in a couple of different spots, but always remote and um, the same sort of thing. Fun was at home you know, not necessarily going, there was no neighborhood. There's no, no other neighbors around. Sure. So, so yeah, that's, um, that's interesting. But what about motorcycles? So that, how, how do you get to motorcycles? You said you, you dropped out of high school, you work in carpentry. What did you do in carpentry? And then how did you get into bikes? Um, I, uh, I worked as a, for a general contractor from basically 16 years old, um, up until my early twenties. And, and, and I, I was decided that I wanted to be a carpenter. And, uh, so I, um, spent my time doing custom home building and remodeling. And, um, at, at the point that the time was right, I started studying to become a contractor. I got my contractor's license. I bid and won my first job as a contractor. I did the job. I got paid and I went back to the guy that had mentored me and said, you know, I got to tell you, I didn't know this until now, but I super hate being a contractor. This is not the job for me. You mean doing the work <laughs> so that, or, or is it handling the it responsibility just, of being the contractor? Yeah. Yes. To all of the above. I I just wasn't, I was very young at the time, you know, I was 21, 22 and I didn't, um, have my wits about me yet. And, and I just didn't want to have a job where I, um, was as sore every day and as dirty every day and had such long days as I did. And I, I thought that it would change when I got my license and it didn't. So, uh, at the time, a friend of mine was working at Sears in the automotive department, busting tires off of ta- cars. And, and I went to apply to go work for him. And they, they told me like, we, we don't have any openings there, but we do have an opening in sales. I said, ah, I don't know anything about sales. I, I don't know how to do that. And so they said, well, take the job sell some stuff. And when an opening comes up in a department you want, then you can grab it. So, uh, so I took the job as a sales guy in the audio in, um, department selling speakers and I loved it. I just sat and talked about music all day and sold product. And, uh, this is going to motorcycles. I promise. <laughs> I, I, uh, I fell in love with, with audio and music. I was a, I'm a musician. I love music. And, and I, decided to, um, go work for Bose, the speaker company. And I went to the, there and worked for them and, and my career exploded. I became a district manager and I'm running all over the nation. I'd never left California before. And now I'm have this job where I'm, um, got people underneath me and I'm, I'm managing and, and I loved it. And I got laid off from that job a month before I was supposed to get married. Mm. And it was, it was a really rough place to be because I needed the money. You know, I was living paycheck to paycheck, but I was also about to go get married and go on honeymoon. And how do I get a job? And my, my fiance at the time was the general manager at a BMW motorcycle dealership in Santa Cruz. And she said, why don't you come here and sell bikes? You know, um, that's not really my scene. I don't know that I want to do that, but I, I rode bikes. I own bikes. I love bikes, but I didn't, wasn't in that industry. And she goes, well, just do it. And then I, I need the help. And after we get married, you can go back to doing what you want to do. And I got, I took the job and I just fell in love with selling BMWs. It's just 
so much fun. Selling BMWs or selling yeah. motorcycles? Definitely BMWs um, because there were other bikes there and I hated selling the other bikes because I didn't believe in the product like I did BMW and the clientele were completely different. And I just liked the way BMW riders were. They were, you know, it was a relationship building experience. You know, a person came in three or four times before they bought a bike. And I love that. I, it was um, a complete departure from a stranger walking in saying, give me your lowest price or I'm going to drive 200 miles to save 50 bucks, you know? But by the time I got to the point when I'm, you know, we're sitting at a table and selling a bike and we've built a relationship, we've ridden together, we've talked together, they've shared what they want to do with their bike, the dreams that they have. And now we're friends and we really were, you know, it wasn't, it's not just a show. It's, it's, um, you know, I made my best friends today. I met selling them bikes at the dealership and I just, it was really fun. And for seven years, I just sold BMW bikes and it was, it was awesome. You, you mentioned you were riding before that. So how did you actually get on, get on a motorcycle for your first time? <laughs> I, uh, um, somebody had a, a beat up old, uh, Kawasaki KZ 1000 laying under a tarp. Um, and I, I went down there with the, I, I was in a band, um, a rock band and I went down there with a the band van and, and drug this beat up bike into the back of it and for 150 bucks paid the guy and went home and, and took the thing apart and fixed it up and made it run. And, uh, I just, you know, the freedom of motorcycling is, is so, uh, intoxicating. Mm. So, you know, once I had that bike and it was a, it was a mess, that bike was, um, barely, uh, safe to ride and barely ran. And, and, uh, you know, I, I, of course, being a new rider crashed it 110 times until it finally couldn't run anymore, but I was hooked and I had to be on bikes all the time. So, um, I was, became the sport bike guy, you know, anytime I could find, get my hands on a sport bike, I was out riding it as much as I could. It was the, you know, the lean, uh, yank and bank excitement in my life. So you're selling BMWs at the dealership, um, working for your wife there for seven years doing that. How is that working for your wife? Are you working directly under her? Yeah, she was most definitely my boss. Did you get special um, treatment my, or anything? <laughs> I most certainly did not. I'll bet. Cause uh, that's, sorry, but that is, that is what happens often, isn't it? It's almost like you get it worse. Like it's like working for your parents. It's like you get treated in some cases, you'll get treated harsher because you, you know, you've got the, um, I guess the advantage to begin with. Yeah. The, it was, she, my wife is very low drama. She just, we call her the velvet hammer. You know, she just, says it how it is, doesn't care about your feelings, not being mean, just this is what I need from you. And this is what I need to buy. And I'm like, I can do that. I like that. And we've, you know, we've, in 20 something years, we've been together now, we've never raised our voices to each other, even when we work together. And uh, it continues on that trend to this day. Wow. And after seven years, what changes at the dealership for you? So, um, I think that anybody that rides motorcycles a lot, which is what I was doing, selling bikes is there, there's a, you know, we're, we're chasing that moment where we're able to be so sucked into the ride that we forget about our day-to-day troubles, you know, the bills I have to pay and the taxes and, you know, issues and relationships, if you have them and what have you and work issues when you're on the bike, you can forget about that stuff. And what, what I found was, is that I rode so much that I couldn't get myself into that zone easily anymore. I would push and push and push. And, and it got to the point where I'm riding really hard and really fast and, and, and dangerously in order to get my head out of the game. And I, and I found myself, my interest in motorcycling, I didn't say it aloud, but it was starting to slip a little bit. I went, I don't, I don't, I'm not having a lot of, as much fun as I used to. 
And um, one day I was out riding with a group of friends and a friend crashed his bike in front of me at, at massive speeds. And it was a spectacular wreck and he was okay. He's still okay to this day, but it really jarred me. And when that happened, I, I took a good hard look at motorcycling. And I went, you know what? I think I've maybe had my fun with this. I don't know that I want to do this anymore. And so I just parked my bike and stared at it more than I rode it and just started pursuing other adventurous interests. See, I was still selling bikes. I just didn't ride them as much. And at the time that this happened, I got a visit from one of your previous um, guests, Mr. Jim Hyde, mm-hmm. who um, was running uh, Rawhide Adventures that, uh, as just a tour company. And he came to my dealership and said, I'm trying to promote people coming and checking out my school or my, uh, my tour company and I, I need help, you know, to gain visibility. And he was telling me about the tours that he ran. And he said, I'm also looking into running some trainings. I haven't done it yet, but we're looking at starting a off-road riding clinics at my facility. And at the time I had never ridden off-road. I knew nothing about dirt riding. And I said, that's very interesting to me. And, uh, he said, well, you should come. We have a class coming up in a month and, and I'll give you a discount and you can come and then you can tell your customers about what it is. And then if they want to come, they can come. I said, OK. So I went to his very first school, which at the time was taught by Jimmy Lewis. And uh, I had all the adventure gear I bought. I had bought an adventure bike and all the gear. And I had just assumed that having the bike and having the gear meant you knew how to ride off road. And and what I found very quickly, it was that is super not the case. You know, the second I took the bike off road, it just I I didn't know why the bike rode so funny. I just knew that adventure riding was stupid and lame and I hated it. Um, So I went and took this off road school thinking this is going to be my last big brouhaha on bikes. I'm going to go and I'm going to take this class. I'm going to end motorcycling on a high note. And then that's it. I'm hanging it up. And I went and took the class and I just absolutely loved it. I fell in love with motorcycling again because it's just so fun to learn a new skill and have fun at five miles an hour. And I was back in that headspace again that I loved and missed about motorcycling. So I became Rawhide's number one advocate. I brought groups of people there, um, by the masses two, three times a year, big giant groups, we'd all go and we'd ride and we'd train together and have fun. And then at the time, Rawhide wasn't really leading tours. So I take my own dealership based tours, I get groups of people together and go to Death Valley and have fun. And I just, you know, motorcycling became something that was very interesting to me again. And when the recession hit in 2009, my job as a salesman was really having a rough go. And I decided it was time to start looking for something else. And I sent an email to Jim saying, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm moving away from motorcycle sales. If you need something, I'm, I'm looking. And he goes, Oh, I'm sure I have a place for you. So he brought me on board. And that's when I transitioned to a a learning to be an off-road ride instructor. Wow. You know, it's serendipity. It's amazing, isn't it? Because you're, you're at a crossroads (laughs) there where you're about to walk away from two wheels and then all of a sudden this guy shows up and, and just changes your life. I, mean, I think that's amazing. It, it's incredible how life is for all of us. It is. And, you know, the, I, I tell my kids, um, like one of the games we play is I say, okay, look around the room and find the color blue. Where do you see blue? And they look around and they point it out. Okay, good. Now find the color red. Where's the color red? And they find the color red. And I said, this is how the universe works. Those colors were always there. 
You just had to focus to find them. And it's the same way with emotion and need. If you need something or you're feeling strong emotions, if you're feeling negative, you can find negativity in the world that's always there. If you need something to swoop in and help you, it's there. You just have to seek it out. So keep your mindset focused and positive and know what you want and you can find it around you. And that's what happened to me. Mm. And that's so true. My analogy is often a sidewalk. I'll say you can walk on a sidewalk that has lots of bumps and holes and cracks in the pavement and you can concentrate on how lousy that sidewalk is. Or you could raise your eyes up and you might see around you, you know, this incredible scenery that's just amazing. But they're both there. It's just, yeah, it's it's what you focus on. And the thing is, if you weren't in that mindset when Jim Hyde called you up or or sorry, when when you when you were in in a position, you you may not have turned Mm -hmm. to him and said, hey, look for a job. Or when he first came into your door, you might have said, well, I'm not really I'm sort of leaning away from this thing and uh, talk to somebody else at the dealership. Exactly right. Yeah, I think that's a, that's incredible. And, and now look at you now. So, so from how long did you work at Rawhide? So I volunteered there while I was working at the dealership for six years. And then I went and worked there full time for another six years. And what happened was they didn't really have a job for me there. So I was just shoveling, you know, trails and keeping them clean and cleaning toilets and make setting beds and also learning how to be an instructor from the other instructors and, uh, a program BMW was really interested in getting more people into adventure riding. So they sponsored a program where, where they sent, um, rawhide to a dealership and ran a free off-road riding clinic. So the dealer would select a location and get a group of people together. And we would go in and teach. And my brother and I, ran that program for two years. We did 60 events a year. So we ran all over the country. We taught over 10,000 people about adventure riding. And we were going- That's incredible. 10,000. It was an insane amount of people. And we'd show up at events and we'd, we'd be in a location with a field that we'd never been to before. It's a hundred degrees out and there are 60 people standing there waiting to be trained. <laughs> and we go, okay, let's make this happen. You know, we hand out some Gatorades and we'd spend, you know, six hours teaching off-road technique to people that had never ridden before off-road. And we, and then we'd pack everything up and we'd drive four hours to the next location and set it up and do it again. And we did that for two years all over the country. And, uh, it was a really exciting way to, and it's really interesting about adventure training is that most people that teach off-road riding technique, they have day jobs, right? You know, mm-hmm. they, they may go once or twice a month and they'll teach off-road and, and then they go back to doing what they do, which is the way it needs to be because the system isn't strong enough to support necessarily full-time trainers, but we got to be full time. And every single day we'd finish a clinic and we'd say to each other, what did we do? Well, what went really poorly? What can we change? How can we tweak? And what we ended up with is we came up with really practical teaching techniques that no one was using at the time because they, we saw every day how they worked and we refined them over two years. It was really exciting. What kind of things did you change? Like sort of reflect from when you started to when you finished that two years, what had changed? So I think like, you know, one of the lessons we might tell a person is how to use the front brake when riding a bike off road. You know, why do we use it? What, what, 
what happens when you apply it? What are the downsides to it? But we were just sort of parroting what we had been taught and we didn't really understand why, you know, we didn't understand the physics behind what's happening to the bike when you apply either brake, where is the weight shifting to, why is ABS a good or a bad thing? And what we found is as we're refining, we're able to peel back those sort of layers of, um, of knowledge and share them with people. You know, they go, why am I using the front brake? Here. Well, that's really interesting that you ask. And this is what's happening to your bike. And this is why the front brake works until this point and it stops working here. And, and so we were able to sort of find practical explanations for the things that everybody teaches every day. Because you're discovering it as you're teaching it. You're watching what's going on. You're seeing what's happening and you're going, you're having little aha moments. Yeah, we're, we're, we're um, finding, you know, we're so deeply immersed in it that we're able to really understand intimately what's happening. You know, why did we put our weight to the outside of the bike when we teach? Well, that's how it's done. Like, of course, it's, that's, that's how it's done. It's what we see everybody do. But why do we do it? What is happening to the bike when we put our weight to the outside? Why is that a benefit to us versus being centered on the bike or being to the inside of the bike? And so, you know, we came away with this really clear understanding. I, you know, California Superbike School says, um, you know, if on a scale of one to 10, 10 being everything there is to know about motorcycles is in our pockets, we are a solid four. Like we're at a four. We understand about four tenths of what motorcycling is and we're amongst the best. And that's what we all sort of jokingly said about the adventure riding teaching is that we're a solid three or four when it comes to understanding what it takes to ride an adventure bike. But it's solid. Anybody that tells you we're a seven, start questioning that <laughs> This is a lot who's more to know. Who's a 10? Jimmy Lewis? <laughs> yeah, Jimmy Lewis. He's pretty bloody good. And, you know, it's um, it's interesting that you bring him up. I, I One of the things I learned about professional trainers is that um, a lot of tr- professional trainers are come from a background of being competitive. Mm-hmm. So they um, – they can ride a bike in ways that you and I may never, ever experience, and which is really, really cool. And Jimmy Lewis is certainly one of them. But there's something that Jimmy Lewis has a higher threshold for than the rest of us, and that is fear. When Jimmy Lewis rides, the stuff that scares him is way beyond what scares most of us. Mm. And I have found as an instructor that being able to tap into that fear, I was scared to death the first time I took an off-road riding course. And, and I, people tell me like, I'm really scared right now. I go, you know what? I know exactly how you feel. I did exactly the same thing you're doing. And I was just as scared then. So this is how I was able to mitigate that fear. And this is how you can do it too. Scared of what? Are, are you like, cause I, I see two things. Okay. One is the fact that you might mess up and, and drop the bike and damage it. But two is the pressure of everyone there. you even the instructor watching what you're doing and realizing that you're probably not near as good as you thought you were when you were going into this. Oh boy. Isn't that the truth? I think that, um, those two points are very salient, but the, the big one I think is that there is no room for ego when you're learning to ride an adventure bike. Um, if you, if your ego is too strong, you will make yourself do something that you don't yet have the skill for. And the, the sport will equalize you, <laughs> you know, uh, and you need to be able to, to, to see what you do to fix what you do. Right. I mean, you, if you're making excuses for yourself, when you, when you drop the bike, it's no one's fault, but yours, you did something wrong. If you don't try yeah. and work that through and accept the fact, okay, obviously I've done something wrong and I need to figure it out. Then you're never going to advance. 
Yeah. And that's precisely, you know, the mindset that we must find ourselves in. And, and I have found that most people find themselves there in, in a short order. And, and that's one of the things I love about adventure riding is that it, it humbles people and you end up seeing the best in people. When a person is scared and they're working their way through it, you see the essence of that person in a really positive way. It's very inspiring. How do you get through that? How, how do you sort of get past the ego when that shows up? Because inevitably you're going to deal with that all the time. Yeah, it certainly has hit. I've hit the wall a few times due to my ego and it's caused me to, uh, to take a step back. Um, I think that, uh, as, as a student, this is really hard for me, especially because I like to be a student and I like to go back and take off-road clinics, even beginner clinics that I have I'm way surpassed. And, and what people assume when they see me is that I'm going to get to watch a guy do a bunch of stoppies and wheelies and burnouts and do crazy stuff. And my ego is begging me to give the audience what they want. And I don't want to be that kind of writer. That's not my way. And, and it's, it takes a, for me, it took a lot of inner strength to be able to turn to people that are expecting that from me and go, Hey man, I'm just here to learn how to better use my clutch. Like I, I'm, I'm not trying to push myself here. There, there's really good writers out there that are far better than me that are better to watch for that sort of thing. Because if I try to do it, I'm going to get hurt. Mm-hmm. And I'm, you know, nine times out of 10, I won't. And I'll have a good time. But on 10 times, you know, this is how I feed my family, you know, and I got to make sure that I keep that silliness in check. Otherwise I'm going to be in trouble. You can do a stoppy with your adventure bike. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to say no. So that I pleasantly surprise you if I do. (laughs) That's always the way to do it. Isn't it? Undersell. Yeah. Yeah. In over delivery. Exactly. You do not want to do it the other way around when it comes to riding adventure bikes. (laughs) Exactly. We're going to take just a short break and then we're going to be right back. Stay with us. We got a lot more coming up. The Red Rock Garage is a coffee shop with a motorcycle addiction. It's a motorcycle destination in British Columbia located in the heart of Beaverdale on Highway 33. It's in southern British Columbia, Canada, just north of Washington State. Now, if you're doing the Alaska to Ushuaia trip or, or maybe just a, a short trip near home, if you can get there, if you can make a little detour, go to the Red Rock Garage and see why everybody's stopping there. They not only have fuel and great coffee, but they've got camping, a B&B, and some of the most spectacular riding anywhere. And and they're, they're motorcycle people. So you drop by there, you, you set up a base camp, and you could even go out there for a couple of days and, and explore the area, or maybe you just want to stop in while you're passing through. They also have a, a cabin for rent. Um, look on their website. It's called Red Rock Retreat. That looks pretty cool as well. Beaverdale, British Columbia on Highway 33, the Red Rock Garage. Check out their website, redrockgarage.ca. Of course, that .ca means Canada, redrockgarage.ca. And anytime you're talking with them, make sure you tell them you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio, redrockgarage.ca. You know, I've been riding on um, IMS products, foot pegs, I think for, it's oh yes, over four years now. And you know what? I still remember the first day that I installed those pegs. Um, my driveway's dirt and it's rough. And I was heading out somewhere. I put the pegs on and I loaded a bunch of my gear up because I, I was going on a, a little trip. And after I got all, all my gear loaded and got all, all my riding gear on, I, I sort of totally forgot about the foot pegs. Until I just instinctively stood up on the foot pegs, it was like, wow, what a difference in the connection it gave me with my bike, the support from the larger platform, 
I remember it so well because it was that significant. Like when I stood up, it was just this amazing connection I felt. I, I've never felt so planted on a motorcycle before. Since then, I mean, I've abused them terribly. I've smashed them on rocks and bashed them on stumps and logs and mashed them into mud. Just generally abused them everywhere. Not on purpose, but it just, that's what happens. And, and you know, pegs often get the brunt of a hard fall on the bike. They, they are often the one to get smashed into the rock when it drops or, you know, if you happen to slide. And it's, that's another good reason for quality pegs to ride with quality pegs. IMS Products has been making parts since 1976. They put it all into their parts. And as soon as you look at their foot pegs, you'll know why. Cast certified 17.4 stainless steel, a certified heat treating process. They're made in the USA. They're warranted for life. I don't know how much more you could want from a foot peg. IMSproducts.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, emailing, inquiring, whatever, mention that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. IMSproducts.com. you if I do. <laughs> That's always the way to do it, isn't it? Undersell. Yeah, yeah and over-deliver, yeah, exactly. You, you do not want to do it the other way around when it comes to riding adventure bikes. <laughs> exactly. But but you're now a, a certified um, BMW trainer. Is that the official title? Yeah, so I went to BMW's... Um, so I, I'm going to back up a little bit by saying that when I was doing this U.S. tour on... Um, G, uh, teaching people how to write. I was also writing, uh, for magazines. I was just starting out to do that. And, and I don't know anything about that, but there was some really good magazine editors that stepped up and helped me understand what to do and how to take pictures. And so I started publishing articles and BMW took notice and they said, Hey, we'd like to send you to the launch of the R1200 GS. It's our new liquid cooled bike. And I go, okay, well, you know, where is it? And it's in South Africa. And, and, I don't, I've never, barely ever left the country and I barely am a writer. And now I'm on a plane flying first class to South Africa with all of these major journalists from all over the this world. This is one of those things, isn't it? We were, we, we were talking about before was, you know, you're, you're having to take that sort of, well, you're stepping up to something that you, you're really not qualified for and you're taking the leap of faith I, yeah. and your you're shoulders and back, chest out. Yep. I can do this. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to give this a go. And, and they, um, so they sent me and I, I had a great time. That's a, a whole story in of itself. But uh, um, they uh, eventually hired me to be the guide for the sort of world premiere launch of the GS when it came through the United States. So I took a group of riders through the through California and Death Valley and what have you. And and uh, and it was all filmed and photographed and the photos are still used to this day. We see them all over the place. Um, but they took notice of me through that and they came to me and said, hey, you know, we're you worked at a dealership. What do you think of the kind of training materials that BMW supplies to dealerships? And I said, oh, I'm really glad you asked that because they're super terrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really? And I go, yeah, I, I got to tell you, if I'm being straight with you, it was really difficult. The um, Because you guys focus on stuff that is not that interesting to dealers. Like we don't need 10 paragraphs on the, that talk about the diameter of the front brake rotor. You know, we need to understand the inner workings of the bike. We need to understand the tech involved, you know, the ergonomics, you know, the maintenance and care, you know, these are the kind of things that people ask us about all the time. And so they said, okay, why don't you make some product videos for us and, uh, to, you know, help us train dealers. I'm, I'm okay. And I knew nothing about <laughs> making videos. I had no idea what I was doing, but I was just, yep, no problem. I'm all over it. 
So um, I became an instructor for them through that process. And then eventually they, um, because I occasionally go through dealerships and run riding clinics, they said, we'd like you to be BMW rider certified. So you can you know, teach based on the techniques that we use. So they sent me to become an on-road certified and off-road certified instructor. And in fact, that was very recently. I've only just gotten back from that. It was really fun. And during that, I mean, that, that's not an easy course. Let, let, let me, before I get to that, I, I want to ask you about the BMW thing, because I know you're well aware of this. Um, there's a lot of people that will look at BMW, even the sound of those letters put together in the way they are, sort of raises the hackles and they think, it's an elitist, um, arrogant, almost um, overblown thing. Yeah, I'm raising my hand on your side because I can very much relate to those thoughts and feelings. <laughs> uh, I uh, honestly, uh, the first time I ever went to Germany, um, I didn't realize what I expected until I saw what I didn't expect, which was I sort of expected in Germany, there's like a big drab building and in the basement, there's a supercomputer that sort of spits out, you know, based on market data and research, it's time to build a bike in X color. And that was sent off to some CNC machine and bikes were spit out. And, uh, I, cause I never, BMW as a company had no face to me. It was just to the people that supplied bikes. And it was really a shock to me to go to Germany for the first time and go to one of the buildings that houses the people that work on bikes and, and design bikes and see a whole sea of beat up, hard ridden motorcycles sitting in the parking lot. And I go, wow, some of these people actually ride and going inside the building and see in, you know, the smell of motorcycle gear that's hard worn and barely washed <laughs> is poignant. It's like, whoa, these people really ride. And I'm walking and I'm seeing all these beat up helmets and, and dirty riding gear and all these people in riding boots, you know, conducting their day to day business. And I go, man, I had no idea that they were like this. I really thought that it was just going to be some white collar place with lots of ties and, you know, yeah. and nonsense. And it, and it super wasn't. Um, so it, it helped me to fall in love with bikes in a, in a way with BMW in a different way, because like a lot of people, I sort of assumed that they were, um, it was all more image and less actual, you know, passionate riders. Well, yeah. I mean, I would picture the BMW cars and a lot of suits and, and ties and, and white shirts and things like that. But, but it yeah. sounds like what you're describing is a, is a, a sort of a soul to the company that you didn't expect. Yeah, existed. A really good way to put it. And that's exactly right. It was, it was a, um, a very pleasant surprise to see that, Hey man, these are hardcore writers and they're, you know, they're into this and they, they push it hard just like we do. And they're trying to develop products. And if you understand, you know, why the background behind why they build things and what the design and architecture and the technology is and where their mindset is when they build it, then suddenly it goes, oh, you know, this tech that I didn't think I liked, uh, that I didn't want on my bike. Now it makes sense. If I use it the way they want it used, it's, it's actually pretty good. Well, you said earlier that, um, you know, it's BMW motorcycles that you fell in love with, not so much motorcycles in selling in particular. It, do you think they're you know, technologically superior like, as an overall machine than, than other brands? Uh, I wouldn't go that far. I, I, I've ridden plenty of bikes from plenty of other manufacturers. And, and that's one of the benefits of sort of flirting with journalism still is that I get to go out and write all the good stuff. And, and uh, there's something to love about them for sure. Um, I think that what I see happen with BMW is they oftentimes are the front runner when it comes to technology on bikes, you know, anti-lock brakes and traction control, for example. And 
uh, we see a lot of pushback from that. And there's this sort of, um, you know, this strong arm German push, you know, that says, no, this is perfect. You will like it very much. And they, they keep giving it to you model year after model year. And, and people finally sort of start to warm up to it. And then eventually now we see all the other manufacturers doing that too. You know, they're not the BMW, certainly not the, the pinnacle of every tech, but they oftentimes come out with it first and experiment and work with it first and make it part of the bike. It's kind of like Apple, isn't it? I mean, the, Apple doesn't, doesn't sell you what you want. They tell you what you want. <laughs> and, and you know, the, and, and I'm being be. facetious, but but it's in fact most of the times it's right. You know, they they are one sort of step ahead. They have this way of looking at things that, you know, when they eliminate eliminate the the DVD drive in your computer, you sort of tear your hair out and think, what are you doing? But the next thing you know, they disappear from everybody else's as well, and they were a step yeah. ahead. I'm still irritated with them taking the headphone jack oh, out of my iPhone. Don't but, get uh, me started. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's, it just drives you nuts, but it's supposed to be better for us. So we're supposed to just accept that and move on. You know, it's, yeah. uh, but the thing is, you know, you described the soul, what we talked about was the soul of, of BMW. Do you think that it's different at KTM or, or at, um, at Honda or, or Kawasaki? I think that what's different in those instances is I feel like a lot of manufacturers do a much better job of putting a personal face on who they are. Um, I, one of the eye opening moments for me at BMW is I, I was taking a sales training with them and I'm sitting in this room that, in a building that's dedicated to teaching people how to be mechanics um, through for BMW cars and bikes. And I'm, I'm learning to be a salesman through sales technique training. And during one of the breaks I left and I went and looked in one of the rooms that had a bunch of BMW cars that were taken apart. And I came across a piston connecting rod that was sitting on a table and it was broken. And I picked it up in my hand and I'm holding it and I go, what kind of force does it take to break a connecting rod? I don't understand this. And the, the, the tech trainer that was in the room came up to me and he says, that's actually broken on purpose. And I said, really, why is that? He goes, well, um, you know, when you put a connecting rod and attach it to the piston, um, usually you have two flat surfaces that go together and you screw them together. But what we do is we, we forge this as a single piece and we intentionally break that opening so that when those two pieces go back together, because they're roughened from being broken, they're, they're much better mate together. And it's much stronger overall. I go, wow, that's really cool. I wonder why they don't do that on the bikes. And he says, oh, we've been doing that on bikes for decades. Go, You're kidding me. The BMW bikes have this tech. And they go, yeah. And, and I said, well, how come we as salespeople don't know this? Because this is really interesting stuff. Mm. And they, he said to me, and I'll never forget. He goes, you know, they really marketing focuses on the ride experience. You know, it's all about the sort of emotion of riding. They, they, they try to sort of stay away from the high tech stuff and the internal workings of the bike. It's all very interesting and it's very advanced, but they want the focus to be the emotion. And I said, yeah, you know, with respect, I think that's wrong. I think that this helps put a face on what you're really making here in a way that people don't know. Cause I didn't know the bikes had that I've been selling them for years and I had no idea. And that became sort of my internal architecture for being a trainer is I want people to understand the inner workings of product. Cause I feel like that gives it a heart. It gives it soul. Mm. And just to be clear, when you're talking about that, you're, you're talking about the big end of the connecting rod, uh, instead of having a, yeah. a, a cut and machined cap, they've actually fractured it. Yes, exactly right. And then, you know, I remember when Yamaha said, you know, we're the first persons to make a titanium fracture connecting rod. And they're right. They were, but they, it's because they were making it out of titanium and BMW had been using that technique on different um, alloys for decades. 
it's fat. And it's, it's really interesting for me to get to go, um, and, and go to Germany and go past the marketing department and go straight to the designers and engineers and ask them questions directly. Oh, why do you build the bike this way? Why is this the way it is? Why, why does it take you so long to get, you know, to provide us with, you know, X aftermarket product and, and get straight answers from them, you know, because they, they don't know how to mince words. They just spit it out the way it is over a beer. It's great. Hmm. You, you went for, we, we talked about, you went for, to become a, an instructor in Germany. That's not an easy thing to do, is it? Can, can you talk about, first of all, how you get to go and then what it's like? Sure. So, um, so BMW offers three levels of international certification. They have on-road certified, off-road certified, and then they have tour guide certification. And just to be considered to go to become certified, you have to either be a BMW partner, you know, so you, you know, working for um, the company as a, as a existing partner, or you have to work for a partner. Like if you worked at California Superbike School, for example, you'd be eligible to go and you have to get a letter of approval from the marketing director in the country you're in. And it's a good solid $6,000 by the time you pay to fly yourself there and pay for the certification and pay for a room and pay for your food per class. So you have to really want it to get there. And what they do is once you get there, um, the first one I took was the on-road certification. And I chose on-road on purpose because I have, I am so accustomed to taking off-road trainings from instructors that don't know all of the, t- the little intricate inner workings. And I'll ask them a question, why are you having me use the clutch this way? And what I find out is they don't know why they're having, they're, they're telling me to do it because the, the person before that taught them told them to do it, but they don't know why. And I want to know why. So I took the on-road course first because I was worried that if I went there and took an off-road course, I'd be arguing with the instructors all the time because I, there were just going to be another group of people that don't really understand the bikes. Just turn off all the tech. You don't need any of that stuff, which is total nonsense, for example. So um, so I took the on-road course and what they do is they spend the first two days teaching you the course as if you're a student. So you're just a regular student that comes into the class. Anybody can take it as a student. You go through the course as a student. And then at the end of two days, they switch gears and they start teaching you how to teach based on the first two days of instruction. So now you switch to an instructor in training and they say, okay, this is how we want you to learn the lesson. This is how we want you to demonstrate it. This is how you set up the course. These are the common questions and this is how you field questions that are not common. And and this is how you keep the group together and keep them safe. And, and you get drilled on this stuff for seven days, seven days of just hitting you hard with technique. And these people know everything. I mean, they are insanely good riders and they have a technological and knowledge base of the bikes that is, I mean, it blew me out of the water. It was really, really interesting. It was really cool. Give me an example. What sort of thing? So, um, like one little element is, you know, one of the things about bikes, um, especially the GS is what exactly is happening to the bike when you switch between modes, you know, you hit the button that goes from rain mode to road mode and road mode to dynamic mode. And I have spent a lot of my career learning that and teaching it to other people so that people can understand when I hit that button, this is how the characteristics of the bike are going to change. And this is what it's good for. And this is when you should be using it. And this is when you should be using a different mode. And when I sat and talked with them, we dug much deeper about, um, on a GS, when you have the GS and Enduro pro, you know, a lot of people know that that means that the ABS is, is overridden on the rear brake. So, you know, 
Why is it overridden? What is the benefit? But uh, there's all these little safety elements that BMW is built into the bike that they don't publish. Like, for example, if you get back on the highway and you uh, forget to take the bike out of Enduro Pro and you're just riding down the road and something happens and there's an accident, you know, something runs out in front of you and you panic and you reach out and you grab the front brake as hard as you can, the bike will, because you haven't actually touched the rear brake pedal, it will apply ABS to the rear brake. Because that's going to help keep you safe in that um, scenario. And it's like little tidbits of knowledge like that, that you could only learn through practical understanding of the bike for days on end that I didn't know. And I find really fascinating. And it, it gave me a lot of respect for these guys. Mm. It's stuff built in that no one's supposed to know. It's it's just safety. Yeah. Uh, you know, they've been putting ABS on bikes since 1986. Mm. And uh and, you know, that back then, I mean, it was unheard of to have ABS on a motorcycle. And back then that ABS system was pretty archaic, you know, but now, of course, everybody has it. So go on. And you you mentioned so you're, you went in for the street training to begin with. Yeah. So I went to the street training and what I learned very quickly is that I was amongst insanely good riders. Um, so the, the instructors that I had, uh, you know, they're those kind of jerks that you hate riding with because they can just ride the pants off of you and they do it while looking like they're not trying at all. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so I am doing everything I can just to keep these guys in view. And, um, and I, I can barely do it. And I've been, a, I'm an experienced rider and I'm, you know, usually pretty good compared to the people I'm riding with. And these guys blew me out of the water. And, and uh, what was also very interesting is um, they had us at they, the training was held in France at this facility where they test new BMW cars and bikes. And so this place was teeming with tech that no one has ever seen before and bikes that no one's ever seen before. And they were super uh, worried about us um, taking pictures. So they took all of our cell phones away at the gate every day. And, you know, we were looking at the new Heritage Cruiser and we saw the new S1000XR, you know, this, uh, this, these bikes that at the time it had were years or, you know, or sometimes years from being released. Some of them we've seen that still haven't been released yet. So it was really exciting to be there riding these bikes in really hardcore speeds and intensity. And at the same time, watching them, the engineers build and test the bikes that are going to be coming in the future. You ended up, um, going for the off-road training. What was that like? So it, it was hard because, <laughs> you know, we all have our own way of, of teaching um, if we're instructors and we have the techniques that we use. And I, when I would, took the on-road course, I didn't know much. So it was really easy for me to learn their way. I had a really hard time in the off-road course because it was the techniques that they wanted me to use were different than what I was accustomed to using. And in order to pass the course, I had to do it their way. And it was just little stuff, but like how many fingers I have on the clutch and brake lever, you know, for example, like they were really intense about making sure I did it right. And they explained to me why they want me doing it the way they wanted me to do it. But I had to unlearn how I normally did it and do it their way. So I really struggled to get through the class. And that that's just, says nothing about how hard it was. I mean, um, 20% of the people that take the instructor certification courses typically don't pass because oh, it's so hard. $6,000 and then walking out. $6,000 and they, sorry, you know, and it's, it's rough. Yeah. And, and I honestly didn't know if I would pass. Well, I, you know, you have your, uh, a blog up and in that you said you sat down one afternoon and you really contemplated whether you should just quit and go home. Yeah. You know, um, what happened 
was we had a first aid course where they teach you technique and they have in Germany, it's really interesting because they have a, a doctor that, that flies with the trauma team in a helicopter to accident sites. And they, the doctor takes care of you from the moment they get to the accident scene all the way through to the hospital and surgery. So we had this really skilled doctor explaining to us, okay, you know, question number one for you guys, when is it okay to take off a motorcyclist helmet? And, uh, you know, you come across an accident scene. When should you take off the helmet ever? Never. Sometimes what are the situations, you know? And so he walks us through it and he says, the answer is every single time, 100%, no matter what, every time the helmet comes off. How, and we're going, that is not right. We've been taught that you have to be really careful. I said, I, he did, I didn't say you didn't have to be careful. You just got to get it off every time. So I'm scribbling all these notes and having a good time. And he says, okay, now we're going to do a practical demonstration. We're going to have you go into a room and we're going to have a little accident scene set up and we're going to have you go in and assess the scene and we're going to give you some tools to use and you're going to, you know, wrap it. If somebody needs a bandage, you wrap it up and what have you and, and you do your thing. I'm okay. That sounds really good. That's a good way to make sure I have the knowledge. So I get my little bag of goodies. I go in with this small group of trainees into this room and I walked into chaos. There was, they had speakers set up playing, um, all kinds of like traffic noise. They had bikes laying on their sides. They had people screaming. They had people with bones sticking out of their bodies and blood and there's absolute chaos. And we just go, holy geez. And we run in and start trying to assess these people. And it's just a simulation, but they made it super real. And for me, it brought me back to having experienced that stuff in real life where I've had, you know, I've been teaching for a long time off-road technique and leading tours. I've had people get hurt and get hurt really badly. And bringing me back to that moment was such a jarring experience. It, it put me into this sort of, you know, stressful state where I went, you know, I don't know that I want to go back to being in charge of people's lives, man. This is not what I signed up for. So I had a really tough go with it. I mean, I passed that part of the course, but I went home to my hotel that night and I said, you know what? I don't know if I want to do this. I, I might, being, you know, being there when somebody is at their worst and having to be in charge of their lives is something that, that it should never be taken lightly by anyone. <clears throat> mm -hmm. You know, if you've seen it, you've been, you know, when I used to teach instructors, um, how to be instructors, I would tell them like, it is so much fun to be an instructor until it's not. And the second it goes bad, it goes really, really bad, really fast. And no one can call themselves an instructor until they've made their way through a tough experience like that, because that's what really tests your character. How are you going to deal with it when somebody's laying there with their leg facing the wrong way? Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, how, what is your response? What is your reaction? And everything you do is going to be amplified and, and scrutinized for all time. So you got to be ready for that stuff. It's fun to go in and, and get to be a hero because you've taught somebody a new skill, but you also have to be ready for the worst. Yeah. And it's one of the things I think people don't realize when they're organizing private rides is the responsibility you take on just by organizing it, you know, just by uh, leading people somewhere because there's, there's implied uh, responsibility. Um, there's a lot of things that come into play there that you may not realize if you've never been a guide, so to speak, an official guide. It, it is true. And it's not to scare people off from doing it. I mean, we need guides to do that. And, and, 
you know, we, we, we need to share the excitement of motorcycling, but you know, it's a dangerous game we play. I mean, heck, I, I take my kids out on rides and write about it as you've probably seen. And the, the most feedback I get is how could you possibly put your kids in danger? You know, you're putting them on the back of a bike and you're taking them to another country and they're, um, you're putting them at risk. How, how can you justify that? And it's a good question. What do you say? I, you know, I, I say that the, my canned answer is that, you know, I'm, I'm a very skilled rider and I mitigate risk and I put my kids and myself in the best possible gear, um, which is all true. But what the reality is, is that they're right. And I contemplate that all the time. You know, what do we, how, how much risk is too much risk in exchange for what they're experiencing? Mm. And when is it too much? And, you know, I, I fear that I won't know this too much. And, you know, if I injure one of my kids on a bike, it hasn't happened. But if I did, I had never forgive myself. So definitely not something to be taken lightly. Yeah. I mean, even, even for yourself, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, yeah. it's the same for everyone. We all have different levels of, um, of what we consider danger and different levels of risk that we want yeah. to take that we, that we will take for certain things. And there's many people who will look at us riders and say, it's just stupid. I mean, it is, you're buzzing down the highway at, at high speed with no protection around you. It's fine when you're on the bike, but it's when you come off and all those obstacles come into play. Yeah, there, there's a risk. And, and I mean, I think you could go through and look at any sort of sport or any sort of activity and getting up in the morning, I always say is a risk. It is. You have no idea what the day's going to like, be like. <laughs> sure. I, um, I play a morbid game with my kids when we're in the car and a bike rides by, I say, okay, look at their gear. How much abrasion resistance do they have? <laughs> and a lot of times it's measured in feet. Mm. You know, they say, okay, well they're in jeans and a t-shirt. So they've got about a foot and a half of abrasion resistance. They go, yeah, that's, that's rounding up, but that's about right. You know, and it's my way of reminding them to put on all their gear every time. Yeah. Well, and the scary thing with abrasion resistance, I think a lot of times people think that because they're wearing the gear that they can slide down the road and be fine. But the fact of the matter is, when you talk to the manufacturers, and we've had, we've talked with AeroStitch and, and different people about this sort of thing, and really you're only talking feet before something is shredded anyway, if it's not leather. And even that yeah. only has a, a certain distance. Yeah, exactly right. And, and you know, the, I, I, it's a juxtaposition because I, I happen to be somebody that doesn't believe that there should be laws on what we should wear when we ride a motorcycle. It irritates me when that happens. But at the same time, I want to see everybody wearing everything. And, uh, because the, you know, the idea of flying in the face of that by putting on, you know, a tank top and a sweatpants and getting on a, you know, 20, you know, $15,000, 200 horsepower sport bike is insane to me. Mm, they always look great going down the highway. They look like they're having more fun than I do sweating it out with all my gear on. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 Exactly right. You know, when it, when you said about um, training at BMW for the off-road training school and you said that you had trouble, you know, and, and it, it was their, their techniques, um, et cetera, they, they sort of have a do it their way attitude, which I don't think is wrong. I mean, if you, if you have to standardize things and then I guess if, when you go off, if you want to change some things, it may be up to you. And probably that's within certain degrees, depending, because I'm sure BMW wants to sure. stick to the line, but is it, is it the techniques they use that you had trouble with or is it their, their teaching technique? The, the teaching techniques were fantastic. Um, generally, I came away going, I need to adjust how I teach to match this because this is much better. Mm. Um, just the way things were explained. And, and you know, I, I in my mind um, as a carpenter, my my mind went to um, 
a piece of uh, laminated plywood in, in terms of how they teach is they, they teach you the surface info. You know, this is what we want you to do. And if you ask questions, then they can dig deeper into the other unseen layers and say, okay, well, this is why we do that. Well, why do we do it that way? Well, the reason we learned that is this, and they, they keep digging deeper and deeper and, and as deep as a person wants to go as a student, they can do it. And I really like that. Um, the technique is just, you know, and, Teaching some, you know, having standardized technique is like trying to tell people what their tire pressure should be. I mean, it's just an impossible question to answer. Um, if you have 20 people in the room, you're going to have 20 different answers. And that was my struggle was that, you know, I don't ride with my body in this position this way. And I have to in order to pass this course. So I'm doing it. Uh, but I don't want to. And and between you and me, and don't don't tell them this, but but I've been on my bike since then, and 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 I find myself using the techniques that they taught. And I go, damn it, <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to like this, but it's actually pretty good. <laughs> was there any glaring things? Now, I don't want to get you in trouble here, Sean. But but was no was there any glaring things? You know, like the braking techniques, heel technique, climbing, whatever the case, that sort of stood out to you as to you as um that's not what you teach. That's not how you feel. Uh, and this is a really silly one, but like, you know, they want, of course, they want you to have two fingers on the clutch and two fingers on the throttle, uh, on the brake lever at all times. And, and I was using their technique and I was doing a hill climb and I was having a struggle with it. And I told them the reason is, is that you guys want me to have my fingers hovering over the brake lever when I'm doing this hill climb. And it doesn't make sense because as I shift my weight forward on the bike, I am to the point of extending my wrist. I'm hyper, almost hyper extending it. Like I can't bend it as much as you want me to with my fingers on the levers and still roll on the throttle at the point when you want me to hit, hit the and throttle lean forward. And I'm leaning forward. I said, there's no reason for me to have my hand on the front brake lever right now because I, the front brake is useless on a hill climb. What am I going to do with it? I'm just going to skitter backwards if I use it. So rear brake is king on a hill climb if I need to stop. So I should be able to take my fingers off and put them on the grip. And then I can adjust the throttle the way I need to as I do the climb without being limited. And we just went around and around and around about this. And finally, you know, the, the compromise was to adjust my levers and bars to a point where I could um, do the technique the way they wanted it done without having to, uh, um, you know, and, and pass the class in that way. You know, and I still now, you know, when I do hill climbs, my hand goes back onto the grip. I mean, that's a really silly example, but that's one that certainly sticks out for me. And when you teach, do you allow people that latitude to sort of adapt their own way or do you have it? So this is the way it should be done. Yeah, I definitely allow the latitude. You know, there's, you know, you're teaching somebody how to ride a bike slow, for example, and make it crawl, which is an, an, an essential element of adventure riding and you know, learning how to, to feather the clutch and learning how to listen to the bike. There is 30 things that they need to do in order to be doing it perfectly. But 25 of those 30 things are not essential. If they don't do those 25 things, they can still do it. And they, a good instructor will pick out the most important elements. You know, maybe they don't have two fingers on the clutch and two fingers on the brake at the time, but I don't necessarily want to be hollering that out to them when their bodies are really tense because they're not used to standing up on the bike. I will be focusing on getting them to relax and be comfortable. And that is to me is good instruction is, is knowing what elements of those 30 to pick out and giving your student one or two or at most three things to work on at a time. 
And uh, this wasn't the way they did it at the instructor's academy. But the reason was, is that you're not going there as a new rider. You know, they have an expectation that you know how to ride already. They're just refining your technique. And I guess it comes down to how deep you want to delve into something. I mean, somebody comes to you and they want a little dirt experience so they, they can comfortably ride and a little bit of dirt. You're not going to do what you learned at BMW. You're not going to get that deep. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I might later, you know, when you, uh, when they've learned a few techniques and then we come back and revisit those techniques again, then you can start adding other layers to what they're doing. But, uh, you know, a just as good an instructor as me, if not better, will argue, no, you got to get this stuff at its infancy. You know, you got to get them thinking about this when they're new to riding so they don't have bad habits they need to get their way out of. So, you know, that's always going to be a back and forth that you right. do. So they're not fighting you about putting their fingers over the brake lever when they're climbing the hill. <laughs> yeah, you know, I've been doing it for five years this way. Now you're telling me, you know, like, oh yeah, okay, that's a fair exactly. point. But, you know, at the time it was more important for you to learn what you know now than it was that. Hey, you mentioned travel there. You mentioned taking your kids traveling on your motorcycle. So where does travel come in? So um, once I became brand ambassador for BMW, travel went crazy. And I, I mean, I, I'm talking 90 plus percent of my work is on the road somewhere. And, um, so I started now traveling all over the world, doing trainings and product events and that sort of thing, but not actually riding motorcycles. I would just go in and, um, you know, talk about product and, and wave the flag and then move on to another event and watch everybody else ride. And so I've tried to sort of fit motorcycle travel in too. The problem with that is, is that just like when I was a sport bike rider, it's hard for me to get back into the zone of forgetting about my troubles and just being sucked into the ride because I ride off road so much. It's just instincts now, you know, it's all muscle memory. I just ride. And now my mind is wandering in dangerous places, thinking about stressful things while I'm riding. So what I've started doing is taking my kids with me. So when I have a trip to some other country and I have to go do an event, I'll pack up my gear and pack up the gear of one of my kids and we'll fly to that location and we'll get in and do the event that I need to do. So they get to see dad work. And then we hop on a bike together and we go take off somewhere. And what's really cool about that is that by seeing motorcycling through the eyes of my kids, I get to experience the joys of it in a way that I have long since forgotten. So you know, when they're telling me, man, I love this feel, look at this view and look, it smells so cool and check out that, you know, monkey tribe going across the tree in Colombia, you know, and I go, oh, wow, I never would have paid attention to that. Now that you're here telling me about it, I'm enjoying it all over again. Wow. Amazing for the kids because I like I mentioned to you, I have four kids. They're all grown up now and that time goes very fast so that the, those experiences, well, it's not the man, truth. that's just incredible what you're doing for the kids. But there's a bit of a, a trend here with you. I think that, you know, you talked about when you were riding there at the dealership, you sort of found the same thing. You weren't getting to that point where you were, um, you're in the zone, I guess really is what it is. And, and yeah. same as yeah, the Zen, yeah, that moment. Zen moment. And same with you. Does, does the zone come with, um, a level of intensity for you? I think, I think that if you asked a, a motorcyclist, any motorcyclist about the very first ride that they took on, on a bike, they could probably tell you quite a bit about it. They could tell you what they rode. They could tell you where they rode at the time of day, what the wind felt like, you know, what the temperature was like. You know, we, we 
connect ourselves with that moment. And if you ask somebody the first time they rode on a major highway or over a twisty mountain pass or in the rain or in another country, they can tell you all about it because those are staple points. But they maybe probably couldn't tell you about the 20th time they rode in another country or the you know 15th time they rode over that same mountain pass because now to them, it's still fun, but it's not this new exciting experience. And you combine that with me with the fact that like I've been all over the world on a bike now. So I've had times when I've stood, you know, in South Africa and stared at the ocean and I go, this looks like Big Sur to me. Like it, it's cool and I'm glad to be there, but I've sort of seen this already and I want to experience new things. And that's, um, that's been my personal struggle. And I think anybody that rides all the time and makes it a career, they're going to start finding that they, that things become a little more routine. It's still fun, but it's a little rough. And, and so I'm always looking for how can I make it exciting again? And sometimes that's being a student again, you know, I go to California Superbike school and take a class. I'm looking at going to Wheelie university cause I want to learn how to do that. And for me, it brings me back to all the excitement and having the kids along brings it back as well. Riding with people that are new riders and are excited about it again, brings it back, you know, as we can all go together and I get to sort of vicariously enjoy this experience and come back with really good memories as opposed to just getting on my bike and taking a ride and going, okay, I just rode the same road I've ridden a hundred times and had a good time, but it's not as good time as it was the first time, you know? And you wouldn't describe yourself as a risk taker. Yeah, not, not so much. Um, I'm a calculated risk taker. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I, I just took my son on um, to Death Valley over Mangle Pass, and Mangle Pass is one of the most brutal passes you could do on two wheels. And and I got a lot of flack from people when I wrote an article about it, about you know you're taking your son on this like treacherous climb, and it's like, and I'm thinking, you know, it's a cal- calculated risk. Yes, it's dangerous, but I've ridden it 30 times. Like I know where the dangers are and where they're not, so I can still take that risk and give him the thrill and get a good story out of it, and not really be. You know, it's not like I'm doing it for the first time with a 11 year old kid on the back. You're, you're doing this sort of stuff in the public eye. You're writing articles about it. Um, and a matter of fact, that's your job to be in the public eye. When you get this sort of feedback, doesn't that sort of throw water on the fire for you? Make you want to back. Yeah, away? that's, that's really hard. Um, you know, I, I wrote an article, um, about why I don't think new riders should use knobby tires when they're learning to ride off road. And, I uh, basically, I made my argument that, look, you know, there's a lot of problems that riding motors, riding with knobby tires will solve, but those same problems can be solved with good riding technique. And it's much more important that you learn the technique first and then use the knobbies to enhance that technique. And I have never ridden anything so divisive. I got, I mean, people like wanted me to die (laughs) over this. I mean, they would tell me that and I go, dude, we're just talking tires, relax. But, but it, it, you know, it, I like that kind of feedback only because it forces me to take a good hard look at myself and go, do I still believe what I preach is do, you know, cause it's been years since I wrote that and I still get feedback occasionally and people hate mailing me and I go, okay, well, let me look at this again. Do I still believe that? Why do I still believe that? Um, and, uh, it, it keeps me trying to be better because it could mean that someday I look back at that and go, yeah, that was good advice at the time, but maybe now I'll change it. You know, the same with riding with kids, you know, like, okay, well, you know, people give me a lot of flack for riding with kids, but um, how can I make it better? Do I say no to my kids when they want to go ride? No, I'm not going to do that, but I can still keep them, you know, in the best gear and keep, you know, helping them along and teaching them life skills. And, and that's worth the risk. 
So when it comes to riding with your kids and, and not just having them on the back, but you talked about, you know, teaching your, your daughter how to ride, Mm. that's a big responsibility. And and I'm sort of curious how far you've went with the thought process. And, And let me just give you mine. My kids don't ride except for the one, my youngest son, and he's ridden and I've ridden with him and I, I love riding with him. It was, it is so much fun, but he sold his bike not long ago. And I can't say that I wasn't relieved. I, I, I'm just relieved. I, I worry about the fact that he's on the bike and I worry about how I would feel if anything happened. How do you yes. feel about that? Well, that's, it's a poignant um, point you make. Um, and that is something I certainly struggle with too. I, the, the number one is that I never pushed motorcycling on my kids. I don't think people tend to anyway, but uh, that is my life. It is my career, but I didn't want it to be theirs unless they wanted it to be. And um, to that end, my son, Drew, has very little interest in motorcycles. I mean, he's around them and he knows they exist and we go on rides together occasionally, but it's not really his scene. Haley has been obsessed with motorcycles since she was old enough to walk. And she's been on my bike since she was four years old and um, now has ridden all over the world with me on the bike and is now learning how to ride in her own right and, uh, and I'm embracing it as long as she is, if she wants it, I want it for her. The, the day that comes, her goal is to get her car, her car license and her motorcycle license on the same day. She's already got a BMW 310 R picked out as her ride to school bike when she turns 16. Oh. And, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm encouraging it, do it. I'm ready. But at the same time, I'm like, Oh man, this is going to be rough. You know, every time she leaves on the bike, I'm going to be biting my fingernails, you know, making sure, wanting to know that she's okay. Well, well, there's so many variables. My wife started to ride for a a little while there and she, she got her learner's permit and, um, I loved going out with her, but the whole time I I'm worried about her the whole time. And the thought of her going off and riding on her own, it's tough. It's, it's scary. When my wife used to ride before we had kids, you know, she worked at a motorcycle dealership and she rode bikes and, and I was scared for her every time she went out riding and it stressed me out. And that's, you know, it's, it's funny because it makes me think like, is she scared for me every time I go out riding? Mm. Because I certainly ride more than she ever did. Um, but that is a real issue we have to deal with. And how do we deal with it? You know, in my case, I go, I'm going to make sure that I use all the skills that I have to, to impart on her, make sure she's in the best gear and uh, make sure she has the best training, whether it's through me or through somebody else. And and I've, I've sort of created a monster, honestly, because it's very unusual to have a teenage girl riding around like Haley does. And manufacturers want to be a part of that. So they contact me and they say, hey, can we put Haley in our gear or in our helmet or in our boots? And OK. And so Haley at 11 years old was getting boxes of stuff <laughs> shipped wow. here and she's opening it up and she's going. I'm not sure how I feel about the color of this $800 jacket. I'm like, Haley, dude, I was 40 years old before I got anything for free in motorcycling. Like, are you kidding me? You're freaking monster. (laughs) So, you know, I'm trying to do my best to mitigate that. We'll probably have to have another conversation in a few years when she rides and and you'll see that I've aged 20 years in that time. Well, the thing is, though, I mean, in, in all the preparation, and I know others are thinking the same thing when they're listening to this, you can prepare all you want. You, you can do all your training. That only does so much. That's that's what's within your control. When you go down the road, we've all had it. I mean, I, mean, I, I couldn't count how many times I've had vehicles pull out in front of me or cut me off or something. 
I'm very aware. I've, I've always been a, a, a proactive rider and I've never been caught by surprise. But it does run through my head. I'm thinking that's that's after a lot of miles riding and I worry about my son. You know, I worry. Does he have the awareness? Is he is he... I mean, you know what we're like when we're young. Girls are, are, are naturally, they tend to be more sensible than, than boys, obviously. I think all of us boys yeah. know that. All of us men know that. Um, <laughs> but um, but still, you know, it's the other factor. Yeah, and there's that, uh, especially these days. You know, what's been interesting about motorcycling in, in terms of technology is the tech is getting so good now that it's getting harder and harder to drop a bike. Um, uh, Nate Kern jokes um, when he talks about s1000 rs if you can if you can crash a bike in rain mode then you should rethink motorcycling <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but but at the other side of that coin is that drivers are now more and more distracted and we're seeing that as we're riding and people are drifting into our lanes because they're watching a movie while they ride while they drive their car and that's the stuff that i worry about you know i can teach haley how to use the brakes to the best extent available to them in the circumstances that she's in. I can teach her how far to lean. I can teach her how to get herself throttled out of trouble, but I can't, it's really hard to deal with, you know, the other element, you know, these 3000 pound vehicles, you know, drifting into your lane or, or not paying attention or rear ending you. Mm. That's scary stuff. And I don't, I don't know what the answer is. It, the answer is not to say no to riding. I can't do that. So that being said, I got to find an answer that works. I'm going to put her in a big giant nerf bubble, you know, and just let her ride around in that. <laughs> An airbag that inflates, you know, just before trouble. I mean, it could be good. It could look silly and it could do some other things with you bouncing down the road, but you may be safer. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the thing is, though, I mean, and I'm, I'm sure, you know, to play devil's advocate, you're the adult, you're the dad. You could pull the plug on it. I could. But will I? And And maybe when I'm faced with it. And she's 16 and she's getting ready to climb on a bike. I might just lose my nerve and say, no, I, I'm not ready for this. Um, but I like to think that, um, you know, I can mitigate it by riding with her at first and, you know, teaching her what places to be extra cautious in, you know, and, and um, where, you know, it's uh, where the danger is most likely to come from and that sort of thing and, and help her figure it out. Because I've only got two years between when she can ride a bike and when she's going to ride, whether I want her to or not. Is she your oldest? She's my oldest. Mm. Yeah. She's 13 now going on 20. I think you might find those two years you're going to have a lot less control than what you are imagining you're going to have at 16. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we're, we're, and I'm happy to report that Haley and I are still best buddies and, uh, you know, we laugh and talk and have a good time. And this is the time when all of my sisters were completely on the outs with, um, with their parents. And so we're able to have, you know, open frank discussions about stuff like this. And and that has been on for me in no small part on massive sacrifices. You know, the first time, you know, Haley, you know, sort of transitioned into womanhood at 11 years old and is now, you know, going through menstrual cycles. Like there's nothing a man wants to talk about less. And that to me is the defining moment where, you know, fathers and daughters lose some of their connection. And, and I, you know, said to her, like, look, I know this is happening and I'm, and I know it's kind of weird and gross and, and, and exciting and, and interesting and w- all the things that you're thinking they are. And so I just want you to know, it, it's not easy for me to talk about it, but, but I, I do want to talk about it. So anytime you want to bring it up, you just let me know. And literally like two weeks later, we're on a motorcycle in Colombia riding together. And she decides that's the time she wants to share with me every disgusting detail. 
And, and I am on the bike cringing, like, cause it's so hard for me to hear. Like, and I go, Haley, keep talking. I know you're making, I'm whimpering up here, but it's just, I, I need a moment to transition. And that was a bonding point between us. You know, now she can talk to me about all that stuff, you know, we're still connected. And when it comes to talking about motorcycles and dangers, like, oh, this is easy. <laughs> we got past the hard stuff. We got ta- past talking about the boy you like in school that you don't want me to kill and all that stuff, you know, so. <laughs> <laughs> and just to, to throw in here to, to show how into riding Haley is, she, she just wrote an article. She did. How did she write an yes, article? She, so, um, she started going to motorcycle events with me, like the, you know, the MOA rally and, and international motorcycle shows. Cause oftentimes I do presentations there and, um, I introduced her to some, um, editors for magazines and said, Hey, you know, this is a, you know, someday if you decide you want to write, these are the people you'll be interacting with. And, and, um, the editor for BMW Riders Association, the um, On the Level magazine, has stayed on top of me and and writ, you know written to me every month or so saying, hey, I'd really like to hear an article from Haley. I'd really like to hear what she has to say. And, and I can help her write it and I can help her go through the process. And I, I keep me- kept mentioning it to Haley. I got another email saying they'd love to hear from you. And so finally, because of COVID and us being stuck at home with not much to do, I said, maybe it's time to write that article. And she goes, I think I'd like to. And in a couple hours, she sat down and punched out an article about what it's like to ride on the back of a bike with me and where she's been and what it's meant to her and what it's meant for her future and motorcycling. And, and we found a bunch of photos and, and sent them off. And the editor contacted us. This is great. Haley, this is how we go through the process. This is how we edit. This is how we change verbiage. You know, we're going to ask for captions for photos. You know, these are the, the whole thing that goes from top to bottom, start to finish. And, uh, so she, uh, about a month ago, we got the article in the, uh, or a couple of weeks ago, we got the magazine, um, and it's her on the cover, her article, her story or her photos. And you just couldn't imagine. I mean, she's just on the moon. That is so exciting. She's 13 years old and she's pulling it off. Sean, it was great fun to sit and talk with you. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you. I'm honored to have been here. Thank you very much. That was Sean Thomas, BMW ambassador, rider trainer. You'll often see Sean at motorcycle events doing presentations or generally helping out, uh, including rider training. We've got links to Sean's website in the show notes for uh, this episode. And of course, you can always follow him on social media. I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it if anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Well, that about wraps
wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and to you, of course, the listener. Thank you very much. Hey, if you're not doing it already, we need your support. This show is built on a model of advertising and listener support. With this COVID thing going on, we really need listener support, and we'd love to get you on to our patron support team. And there's some perks in there for you as well. If you want to check that out, drop by our website, adventureriderradio.com, click on support. And while I'm reminding you of things, we have another show called ARR Raw. If you haven't heard of it already, it comes out every month, once a month. And it's a group of us that sit around and talk about motorcycle travel. It's lots of fun. And there's some great information in there too. You need to subscribe separately. And if you haven't given us a rating already, please drop by and give us a five-star rating anywhere that you find our podcast. Um, we would love that. Anyway, thank you very much. If it's time, if it's, if you can do it rather, if it's, <laughs> if you can do it, it's time to get out there and ride your bike. My name's Jim Martin. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next week. Hi, this is Charlie Borman and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. 